Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. G'day everyone. Lauren Cress, the business scientist here. Hope you're having an awesome week. So today I'm super excited about the interview that I'm sharing with you. It is with Melissa Peppers, who is the founder of Bonbo. And what we're talking about is how to create an extraordinary business. How to create a business that is going to stand out from the crowd online. We're seeing so much of the same, same, same. I mean, if you go on Facebook and spend 10 minutes there, you'll see ads popping up constantly. There's just like, oh, another one of these ads, another one of these ads that is selling me this online program or selling me this coaching program or selling me this. And it's just kind of like really boring. So Melissa and I talk about that. How do you create a business or how do you move your business forward so that it isn't boring? For me personally, just speaking with Melissa helped me so much because for me, one of the things I was finding hard was having a product offering that was really different to everyone else's. And I'm really excited actually about the product that I am launching. It's coming up very soon, October 1. If you want to find out more about that, I'm about to change my website over today. So you can go over to laurencrest.com and see what that's about. I'd be interested to see whether or not you think it's interesting and not boring. Uh, But if you've been kind of wondering about this whole niche thing, like, okay, how do I create a niche and what does that mean? What I really love about this chat with Melissa is that we talk about, well, these are the different ways that you can create niches. Here's a few different angles that you can come at this problem from. Uh, so really, really just so much good advice in here. <laughs> I'd, if you're struggling with it, I definitely recommend going over to LinkedIn and reaching out to Melissa. Let her know that you obviously heard about her through this podcast. And if you want to find out more about her business, Bonbo, and what she's doing, head over to bonbo.co. Uh, the link will be in the description as well. Essentially what Melissa does at Bonbo is transform boring businesses into extraordinary ones. So without further ado, let's get on to the main part of today's episode. Let me know what you think. Uh, tweet with me at laurencress 89 with the hashtag grow your brand. Obviously share this with your friends if you think they would get a lot out of it. I know this is something a lot of people struggle with. So share the love. And if you want to go the extra mile to support this show, you can also head over to my Ko-fi page. It's ko-fi.com forward slash Lauren Crest. The link is in the show notes as well. All right, let's have a listen to my chat with Melissa Peppers. Squeeze every moment out of summer with a mango dragon fruit Starbucks refreshers beverage. It's a combo of sweet mango and bold dragon fruit flavors for a vibrant, refreshing way to cool down on hot days. Your happy is here at Starbucks. Order ahead on the app. Oh, we could, we could fly. This is your summer. That means Six Flags in the taste of an ice-cold Coca-Cola. We're talking thrilling coasters, delicious burgers, yes. real moments together, and this. Coke is summer refreshment when you need it most, so you can hop on another ride or race down a slide at the water park. Six Flags and Coca-Cola. Come make it yours. Visit SixFlags.com slash Coke to save up to $20 on passes, plus daily tickets starting at $34.99. G'day everyone, Lauren Kress, the business scientist here. I'm so excited about today's interview. As I said earlier this week, I'm speaking with 
Melissa here, Melissa Pepper, Peppers from Bombo. And Melissa is like one of, if not the most, one of the most smartest women I've met in my life. I'm just so excited about where this conversation is going to go and what we're going to talk about. Melissa, to start with, tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Yeah, um, so I'm a business designer and it's completely normal if you've never actually heard that term before. It's quite like a nascent um, industry. But basically what it means is um, business designers take an approach known as design thinking, which is a type of problem-solving methodology, and apply it to the business concept and the business idea and business strategy instead of applying it to, say, a brand. You know, kind of think, imagine if advertising and all of that creative talent focused on the actual business concept and the core idea behind it. Instead of making a cool ad for maybe an otherwise boring business, we focus on that interesting business part. So, yeah, I love this kind of uh, when we were talking about what we we're going to talk about today, because we know we could go off on a lot of different yeah. topics here. <laughs> so we were talking about, you, you sort of talked about this difference between a boring business and an extraordinary business. So tell us a little bit about that. What is a boring business? What is an extraordinary business? What do, what does that look like? So in your local area, I bet you have a fish and chip shop and I bet that fish and chip shop looks exactly like the one that's in my local area. And if they were like near each other, um, that would actually be really problematic for business. It's there's, it, there isn't. It's not to say that there isn't a place for that type of business, but there's um, it's harder to compete because you have to compete with all of the other businesses that do the same kind of thing that you do. And um, as they start getting closer and closer together, what that means is you have to kind of compete on price. If you create a business that is interesting and interesting, there's a lot of different categories of interesting um, and they're all backed up by different types of strategies. But if you create an interesting business, especially one in a, a niche or a challenging kind of area or challenger area, we are able to unlock an uh, area of customers that's just for us. So we don't have to compete with anybody else. We can just do our own thing for our own audience in our own way. And we have this kind of what I call like a micro-monopoly advantage. So if you have ever won the game Monopoly before or played it and been on the winning side, you know like how fun it can be because you have um, a lot of power. But you don't have to be a, you don't have to be the best of the fish and chip shops. You can just be a totally different kind of one. Imagine like just if just one fish and chip shop instead of being the the same kind of local experience. Imagine if instead it was like a kind of rum bar where you could buy you know beautiful like roasted pineapple you know glazed as well as you know different kinds of fish inspired by say you know Hawaiian or like island of fusion flavors that would be so much more interesting than just like and it would be so much more popular you can kind of see straight away that that just by making something intriguing um, and not just gimmicky but actually intriguing and interesting um, because there is a methodology behind that Um, it's just so much more powerful immediately. It makes me think of like I remember there's this so there's this like food court full of like amazing Asian food in the heart of Sydney and each stall in this food court does like one thing so there is the place that you go for like the best Japanese ramen that you will ever have they do like two ramens that's all they do (laughs) and I think they sell like well as well because there's a place for quality but then it's like um you, when you're when you have that kind of advantage where you become what's called a destination which means it doesn't matter if you're on a side street or on the main street people are coming to you because you do something that other people don't do otherwise they'll just go for whichever one is the closest or the cheapest or you know or all other things kind of equal 
So, so this makes my heading hard. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this, is, this is something that like with uh, online, right, like with businesses going more and more online and looking at suddenly like, oh, hang on, I've got the world is my market potentially, right? Like I don't just have to consult with people in Sydney. I can consult with people anywhere in the world. We probably need to speak the, the same language, but that's pretty much the only limiting factor, right? So this becomes even more relevant, right? Because I think the rise of this kind of, you got to be niche, got to be niche, got to be niche. This is where it comes from, right? Absolutely. And we're seeing this year in particular, as we all kind of pivot the business models and um, try and grow online, what, what's happening is the same people are screaming louder in the same space for the same customer. And that's what what's the problem with the, the not interesting kind of brand when your bank is the same as my bank or that kind of thing. It gets harder and harder because you, in the category bank, there's lots of options to compete with. And when you're kind of going online, how do you how do you stop that? You know, people are tuning. Have to make what is it, thirty five thousand decisions on average a day, um, and where we don't like tuning into advertising. So how do you stop that scrolling? And if you're one of the me too kind of businesses, what happens is unless you're known or there's something else that makes you cut out, like cut through, such as repetitive paid advertising, which gets quite expensive. You know, that's that's really hard slog. Whereas if you've got if you've worked out, for example, there's there's a lot of different ways of doing niches. And I don't um kind of look at it quite the same way. So most other people would see a niche as like, hey, I sell candles, the niche would be selling candles for, you know, um wellness kind of industry. I don't see niches being that broad. I see it as um a few different categories. One of them is being um working at a specific moment in a customer's journey or in a customer's life where they're triggered to have a specific type of need and then tailoring your business concept to actually meet that specific moment. So um, as an example, when I was working on my previous business in um, design space and advertising space, rebranding was something I loved selling. And I created a niche out of a specific moment where I worked out, okay, what kinds of businesses, what was happening in businesses right before they needed a rebrand? And could that change the way that I actually approach rebranding? And I worked out that a lot of companies that get a new CEO right before they do a rebrand. And so I was like, why is that? Why does that happen with this audience more than others? And you could see that at a top level as being about a target market. But the extra level that I would take that to is going, okay, well, exploring this um, sort of thread further, what I found was that CEOs that were looking for a rebrand because they just stepped into this new role. They might've been in the same company or they might've come from a different company, but they're still learning the ins and outs of this new role and at this company. They wanna excite people about their vision for the future and you know, customers, stakeholders, the rest of them without disrupting the, the things they're still learning. Cause you don't wanna change things before you've worked out you know, what what shouldn't be changed and, and what um, what should. And a rebrand was actually a really great way to do that. So w- once I understood that, not only did it change how I would market it differently, but actually use that to inform the way that I actually created rebranding services because I understood that moment. So that's one way of creating a niche. Another is like a challenger brand. So um, this is, you'll see, for example, I don't know if you've ever seen neobanks, but um, like UpBank compared to Bendigo Bank, if, if you're... Um, if you're doing something that's disruptive essentially in the industry and you come in at a lower price point, what you'll see, what you've started seeing is big businesses instead of it's not believable if Bendigo Bank suddenly become disruptive in the same industry because we know that they're not, right? So what they do is they partner with a different business 
using some of their, you know, their strength and their brand prowess, and they use that to develop up, which is a challenger bank. And that bank is able to grow and um, grow to a unique audience with unique market share, creating a unique sort of um, millennial focused uh, need for their product and way of distributing their actual business model, if that kind of makes sense. So there are a few of the different like ways that you can explore niches. There's, there's heaps and heaps of others. But um, having that niche moment, you have essentially this entire audience that's just for you. You're not having to compete quite as hard or you you either have no competition or you're reducing the um, the types of competition that you're directly head-on experiencing. And that just means when you're advertising to that audience at that moment with that message, it's just so much more effective. Like it stops the scroll and it gets gets them excited. Yeah, I, I love the way that you talk about uh, niches because I think that, I mean, especially when in relation to business design, right, like what I've seen a lot out in market is like people say, oh, you need to be niche. They don't explain what that means. And from a more traditional marketing standpoint, what being a niche brand is, is like being having like a really small market and being a small brand. Like that that's kind of what it has traditionally. You can actually have right? a huge market and still be niche. It just yes. means... In, in my particular interpretation of it, it means that you have micro-monopoly advantage. If you can have a micro-monopoly advantage, I would call that um, my definition of niche. And I think that it's a, it gives a much clearer blueprint because you're like, okay, well, these are the, say, you know, X amount of categories of the different ways I can do niches and I call those playbooks. So it's like which, which way could I approach um, setting up my business for my niche as opposed to just like do I just pick an industry and go okay well instead of just being a um you know a business consultant I'm going to be a business consultant for purpose-led women and it's like well at that point you either go on so small that there's not enough of a market to build a sustainable business and then you have to like unniche at some point or you've gone so you've picked some the next most popular thing and you actually just have a slightly easier version of the same problem well, I think, you know, so the, one of the, the problems that I'm seeing is like, uh, and I've seen this being taught by people as well, like um, as in like their business strategy, oh, just like pick a random demographic and then like pick, a, you know, a, a, a problem that you can solve and then mish, mash those together oh, and then man. you have a niche, right? <laughs> when I see it, I'm like, mm, yeah, but it's not really well, what you're saying is take a, a look at the lay of the land first, really, mm. like whether you're doing that challenger kind of brand or whether you're doing more that like that specific, I love the specific moment one. I just think oh, it's, God. well, I mean, this is where like, this is where um, psychographics become so much more important than demographics, right? It also it massively changes the way that like I use big, data in business as well because one thing I see and this is a big difference between strategists and marketers and it's not a bad thing that marketers do this because it's actually the, the role of marketing is to roll out strategy um it's to you know, execute um so the strategies that marketers make are an execution strategy for an, another type of strategy which is business strategy and what happens is the role of a strategist should be to create a target market as well as to create a business concept or you know brand position, those kinds of things. And then the marketing and execution takes that to the next step. But what happens is most, for, especially for kind of small, medium businesses, um, usually all of that strategy starts at marketing. And so what happens is your marketer will ask you, what's your target market? And you'll be like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Well, I guess everyone or you know whatever whatever scary things people say about their strategy that their entire business relies on but you know 
anyway, then what the marketer does will go, will start looking at their analytics, um, if they have analytics, and sort of see, okay, well, this is what happens in your space, or this is what's happening in your specific business. And what that does is it goes, okay, all of this data <laughs> is self-fulfilling. It says this is what's already happening. That doesn't mean that's what should be happening or what would be desirable. And so businesses will start just chasing after who they're already chasing after. And so essentially every every kind of concept, this is actually a problem with design thinking as well, every kind of concept starts regressing towards just one point, which is the customer. But ultimately what's in the customer's interest, if we're really looking at what the customer wants, is to have their solution solved for free. Like that's not... <laughs> <laughs> so you really need like in strategy I kind of see it as placing a bet so what you want to look at is what's happening in the landscape what's happening in the marketplace what are the opportunities what's happening for the customer what do they want what are their pain points what are the, what's their journey looking like and also what's happening in your business Where, where's possible competitive advantage and opportunity that you can craft over time that connects back to your skills and your ideas and how you like to run things and I see most ideas as being just in one of those three or maybe in a crossover of the two. But I see the best ideas that continually make the most successful and the most interesting businesses being right smack bang in the middle of all three of them. Yes, got it. I just want to quickly... Yeah, yeah, go for it. (laughs) Oh, no, I was just going to quickly say shout out to Nada Nahi who just wrote a comment and said hello. And then she said, to me, just be original. Now, I I wouldn't mind asking you about this question because I think... that ties into what I was about to talk about. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Melissa, go. You can also be gimmicky when you're – so original original ideas can be in the middle of all three, but some original ideas are just on the business and idea side, and that's when the business owner goes, I've come up with a great idea, and then they spend all of this money on launching the product, and it's totally not viable. No one wants to buy it, or or no one wants to – they want that problem solved. It is a real problem, but they're actually not willing to pay that much money for their problem to be solved. And so you get – gimmicky ideas you get ideas that just don't just launch to a complete you know crickets or um they're gimmicky and they kind of they'll last they'll be really great for like two weeks while everyone's like that that strange idea um or ideas that are niche and do have potential but because you don't understand the customer or the market kind of side of how your originality is received not only by the business market, sort of the um, the environment that that business will exist in the competitive landscape, but also how the customers are going to receive it. So you get a business that, I, for example, I might be able to say that's actually a really interesting and powerful idea, but actually it hasn't been communicated at all. Your customers look at your page and they don't realise what you do. They're either confused by what you do or they think that you do something else. And so um, with those kinds of ideas, we look at how to how to bring that idea from that kind of idea business circle into the middle if we imagine a Venn diagram of kind of customer market idea into that middle of that circle where there's more of those original advantages and if you playing in that middle space as well and you're actually wanting to go how do I create an original idea of nothing um this one of the other niche brands that I niche sort, sort of playbooks that I particularly love is what I call like the wild card strategy and it looks at a emerging trend that doesn't or a trend that doesn't yet exist but will be a future trend so in trend analysts we can see different industries for example that might start converging with each other and we know that exciting things are going to pop up in the space where where all those three things collide um, which ones will take off will depend on kind of what audience but if you can see those trends coming and what's possible you know your business skill and your what your audience or what the audience of this kind of space might be interested in 
then you can start playing with um, custom unique business models and unique business ideas that can kind of take off in that space. And I can give an example because I know that that can be a little bit like esoteric for people <laughs> every day. Like I'm seeing all the dots connecting, but I understand that people that don't do this day to day aren't seeing those dots connecting. But basically, um, as an example, this is one I really love. I've been following this trend for a really long time is I've noticed that um, immersive art experiences is one of the one of the arms kind of colliding another of them is um visual merchandising so what's happening in the very front or, or internally as well but especially what's happening in the store front of a shopping experience as well as um experiential brand activation so where a brand does some kind of an interesting vr pop-up or something like that and i noticed that those three things were starting to do more and more things similar to the other areas that's how i know that they're coming towards each other if that kind of makes sense so i've noticed that art galleries are starting to take some of the logic and the ideas from visual merchandising and that, you know, brand activations were starting to do some of the kinds of things that art and art, um, artists might do as part of a performance piece. And so I saw these three things coming together and I was like, okay, something really interesting is going to, well, a few really interesting things are going to start happening in the middle of these three areas. So a business can kind of go, how could I use existing business logic and customer challenges and my skill set to in to play in this new space that doesn't yet exist? And um, businesses that popped up in that space that were really, really powerful, and there's still new ones coming. Um, one of them is called House of Showfields in the US. And you pay to, I think you pay to go in. Um, and essentially, it's a whole bunch of rooms. And each of those rooms is an activated experience around a brand so it's like a shopping experience they call it retail theater this this particular industry okay. that emerged in this space and what happens is they'll, they'll train for example actual you know actors to take you through this journey of their product it's like you're inside the ad and then at the end the product sales are so much higher because you've really fully immersed and experienced the brand but at the same time it's an exciting you know highly photographable art kind of thing we're also seeing in the same space um instagram activations popping up being really really exciting and interesting we're also seeing um what's it called like uh, the front of um like the you know shop window shop fronts where you can start actually going in and doing stuff in the in the shop front itself and be part of the you know that experience there's just so many things popping up in that space but um that's one great way of combining upcoming trends so you're not just copying another trend that's already there you're helping bring in a new trend that's coming anyway but you're going to say how can i direct this energy and momentum that's going to come because that's all trends are is just momentum and culture how can i direct this stream of culture to my business interests and usually have a lot of fun doing it at the same time so I call that like wild card niche basically <laughs> I love that it made me actually think as well like because this has come up kind of um a couple of times as you've been talking around like you know we we all hear the buzz term customer-centered business design right and to me like as you're talking about that I'm like yeah yeah the customer gets an awesome experience but actually to uncover that and unpack what you're talking about you're not looking so much at the customer in terms of what does the customer want like you were sort of saying before as well it's more like know what they want <laughs> yeah right I mean this is a big problem I have with okay I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent big problem I have with the way a lot of market research is done because people go oh well can you do like primary market research you know like go out in like field market research go out and actually talk to people <laughs> okay yeah so can you share because I have some problems with that but you I'll ask you like what 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 are the problems with the, like, what are some of the, okay, like from a startup perspective, oh, I'm going to go do my market research. What are some of the big mistakes people are making yeah. when it comes um, to that? 
so firstly it's um understanding the weight of of how of what role those answers actually should play in your business um and you know let alone the actual research part of getting the right audience and that kind of thing but just let's just take it right back to the beginning and kind of say okay well what role should the answers to those kinds of questions play and i think that i think the quote is like if you asked you know a person what they want they'll ask for a faster horse but actually the visionary can imagine the car right so the customer can't actually imagine what is possible in the way that entrepreneurs or visionaries or ideas people but specifically in the creative space of business as opposed to the creative space of art um what is actually sort of possible there and then the second part is um like when you understand what kind of role those surveys sort of play in your business you can kind of go okay well i'll, I'll listen to these kinds of answers about this much and i'll use them to inform these kinds of opinions you actually want to know that in advance if you can but the other part of it is um this is from behavioral economics essentially the way we think is divided roughly into two systems system one thinking and system two thinking so um system one thinking is if you once you know how to drive a car your your brain will essentially be on autopilot between your local supermarket and your house right you don't you don't think like imagine compare that to when you're first learning to drive and you have to like think of every little thing and you're, it's you're really like switched on and it's really slow and difficult which we call system two thinking basically our brains can do both but because we have to make so many decisions in a day we love to do as much of that as possible on autopilot and that's the part of your brain that makes decisions for you like purchasing decisions or decisions about what i would do in the future the biggest problem i see in surveys that's actually very easily fixed is when they ask people what would you do or would you like this or this and what happens is the customer just kind of answers with the system two thinking which doesn't actually make the decision at the time so they answer with a totally different part of their brain to what makes to what actually could be observed at that time and what happens is the answers are nearly always wrong um, and also people pleasing so they'll kind of the the customer will be like you know would you like this yeah that sounds great would they yes. buy them if they could even say yes to that but they might not actually when it comes to and so like so much millions of dollars every year is wasted because in focus groups people ask the question what would you do in the future it's much much better to work out okay what are the closest existing behaviors and what us let's ask people what they already do what do they do in the past um you've still got other biases there around people um perhaps not wanting to share certain information about what they do um maybe they think that they know in their mind what they actually do but they might be uncomfortable sharing a certain perspective depending on what your what kind of question you're asking there are people who always want to make themselves look a little bit better in the, in the survey kind of answers which is also problematic with surveys um not to say that surveys don't have a place i use them they they do have a place but you never want to ask what would you do in the future you want to kind of go okay say i'm looking at um you know would people buy my chocolate my you know specific flavor of chocolate that i'm making that's totally unique right what i would look at is do people already buy the unique factor in something else and do people buy the unique factor in food and then do people buy chocolate I would look at those three things and observe existing behavior and ask them questions about existing behavior um as well. So yeah, definitely try and do a survey ask about old behavior and also separately use like trend information to look globally what what do people actually do when we just watch them and they don't know we're looking as well. Mm, yeah, that's that's a really really great really great point. <laughs> like I mean, I remember like back at uni we did a whole course on like um designing surveys and assessments and all this kind of stuff and it's like most survey data that like from what 
what I've seen, like when it comes to businesses doing surveys, like none of those kind of 101 psychology stuff is taken into consideration. I mean, that might be a biased thing. Like I'm just basing this on personal experience, but it really does seem like, I mean, to me thinking about, you know, people like Eric Rees and the Lean Startup and like sort of this rise of like design sprints, really the, the, probably that in a lot of ways the best thing to do is actually have the pro- prototype right like actually be like here's the thing <laughs> let's yeah, just watch you handle it. yeah yeah absolutely and that's can be one of the big challenges with so I use design thinking as one of the components of my methodology but um it still is that challenge of once again even when we watch what people are doing if all of the businesses are watching this same behavior all of them are going to start, are going to come up with the same outcomes and move towards that same point. And so you start getting, once again, people regressing towards a generic concept. So you've got businesses in research, treating research as a kind of a holy grail and not bringing their unique, not bringing tension and uniqueness into the way that they approach the prototype itself. And then once it's kind of out in the wild, we have cookie cutter strategies of how to grow. And it's like, if you're growing in generic ways, you're not to say that there's not a place for those strategies as well, but if you're growing in generic ways with research based on generic concepts for the same audiences, the same people, like it's, it's really easy to see why that actually becomes really difficult in the long run. So I want to bring this back to, you know, sort of our core topic for today around like, how to actually then grow your business specifically from an online perspective, right? So, okay, let's, let's say hypothetical scenario. Someone's gotten to a point where they're like, actually, I I know that this niche is going to work. I feel pretty confident. They've done that kind of groundwork before you mentioned that sort of uh, difference between, okay, it could be a really original idea. It could be actually a really, really viable idea, but then in the communication that doesn't come through in what they're saying and what they're doing. So can you talk us through a little bit about, because to me, sorry, this is a long-winded question. I'm understanding that. (laughs) But to me, I'm like the, one of the challenges we have from a, a brand story perspective is we need to be using language that people understand. Like if we've got something completely new, like pre smartphone, if you were like, there's a smartphone, like people wouldn't know what a smartphone is. Like, so how do you kind of, maybe let's use that as an example. What would you do if you're okay, I've got a smartphone, people want to use it, it will be a good product. What, what do you, how do you actually communicate that when people don't know what it is? Cool. So with um, most of what we've been talking about so far is what I would call the business system. And then there's also the brand and the marketing kind of system. So in between you have something to sell and there is someone that could buy that these two systems exist and they click kind of together. So assuming that we have a great niche um, and it's interesting, we then want to understand how how is that niche received by the, um, by the business context and by the consumer. And then assuming that we also understand our consumer very well and how that's going in the market, we get to this, the part of that system that's the brand system and um, there's not as much crossover with the business system. And this, uh, for me, it mostly comes to um, brand strategy. And the reason I say that is if we look at the traditional shopper marketing funnels, the steps a shopper might take between seeing something and buying, 
and it's it's more complicated than this, but roughly they have to see and know you exist for the first time. So a lot of businesses I'll see have all of this great stuff and they'll explain what they do really well, but they just won't be anywhere for people to know that they even exist. And so it's like, you know, build it and they will come is a terrible um, method. Even if you're on a kind of a main street with great foot traffic, you don't know that it's the right kind of foot traffic. So you need, you need ways for the new customers to actually come and find you and see that you exist. Then at that point, relevance takes over and um, trends uh, and uh, measures of what's happening in culture. So they show what relevance is. Um, and what you, what I mean by that is say you, you had, you were triggered as a, a reason to buy a um, new deodorant. And the reason that you were triggered to buy a new deodorant, cause you don't just, there's just, no, you don't just buy a deodorant for no reason. For example, <laughs> the reason that you were triggered to buy it happened to be that you had streaky marks under your arms. So you put yourself um, in the front of the deodorant section of your supermarket, as an example. So that's the no section. If you're in that on that shelf, you are there able to be seen. Then what happens is a customer would choose which deodorant, and they don't just pick the one that's the loudest or the most beautiful by any general society sort of standards. They pick the one that's most relevant for the reason that triggered them to buy and for who they are. So if you saw one that actually had streaky marks all over it, the customer would pick that up because it's the most relevant because they go, okay, hey, this, this deodorant speaks to me. It understands what I'm looking for. And you want to kind of work out what is it that means relevance to your audience and how do we look like that and how do we feel like that? And that's what brand is. So what's, what's cool for the streaky underwear and under, um, you know, deodorant group, what is cool for the people that don't want streaks? What kind of clothing might they wear where that's particularly problematic? All of those things you start being able to build a profile of who your audience could be from this space. You want to test it, of course, as well. But instead of just picking, you know, what's the most, you know, eco or beautiful, you want to pick what, what is most relevant to my customer. And you want to look at the trends in that space because that, that shows you how relevance is expressed because things can actually just change over time affected just by overall generic cultural standards. So what I mean by that as well is um, we used to have hampers. We still do have hampers, but like in general, there were a lot of hamper businesses, you know, 10 years ago. Now there's a lot of subscription box businesses. Subscription boxes in terms of the function that they actually serve are just an evolved version of a hamper. They're the same thing, but the trends show how that actually evolves and how that looks different over time as well. So you really want to understand that, that aspect, the relevance aspect um, and if you've got natural high relevance, any ads that you do, as long as you're in front of that right audience, any, um, you know, SEO, all of those kinds of things will naturally um, lift because your brand or all, all Google wants to show and all social media algorithms want to show is the most interesting content to that particular audience person. And relevance is really kind of the answer there. So when I'm, for example, if I do a social ad for something, I want to get 10 out of 10 relevance because that means I'm hitting, I'm hitting that interest kind of nail on the head. Then if all of that works, your customer will pick that product off the shelf or they'll click it through and put it on their card or they'll follow your page to work out more about your service or whatever, you know, whatever that stage of the journey looks like for your particular business structure. At that point, they still don't trust you enough to buy. So they want more information and not just any kinds of information. They want more information that's still relevant to that particular moment. So interest, interest is how you attract people via relevance, essentially. If I, if I was to break down what interesting kind of meant um, based on the kind of discussions that we've had today. So does that kind of explain like what should be in the sort of system in between? Like if you can nail that trust, if you can attract that audience, look like what they're looking for. So they go, oh, you're for me. 
And then you continue to deliver and saying, yes, I'm still for you and this is why I'm I'm especially good for you. It should always result in a sale. And I see that in my own um, and in the clients I work with, I see that as um, I see actual evidence of that working. So, for example, if people start following my social page, I don't look like other business consultants look like. It's extraordinarily deliberate. And what happens is I'll get private messages from people saying, like, don't quite know what you do yet. But like, not because they don't understand my, my messaging <laughs> you know, to make that note, but I don't you know, fully understand what you do yet, but I really like it. I just, I just love that it, it's like this, right? And if any single one of those people are also in my target market, they will buy within a month my service. So because I know the rest of the content's there to continue them down that sort of trust pathway. But the fact that you, when you start getting feedback like that, that says to your that says it's one way of your audience expressing to you I'm loving what you're doing you're you're relevant to me and I don't know how to put my words on it because we like I don't know how to put words to my expression so they'll just kind of say something if they're motivated to, to, to connect with you but um that's the kind of that's kind of what it looks like if your brand is really working people will use your language to describe yourself or or show signals of attraction and you know then okay that that part of my segment is working really well I really like what you said about, um, you know, sort of distinguishing between that like reach aspect of getting out there in market so people know who you are and then the relevance aspect. I mean, the way I'm thinking about it in my head for an online marketing sort of journey is like, uh, like uh, actually I think this came up in like a content marketing thing recently, but it's like a lot of people think that if they create engaging content, that's enough. And it's like, Mm -hmm. But if no one knows about the content, like it's you kind of you're you're doing the relevant stuff, but you're not doing the reach stuff. So yeah, all the when they're there, it'll, it'll slide right through. <laughs> <laughs> you got one part yeah. of your funnel working. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's what it essentially is. It's the digital equivalent of like you wouldn't create a shop on a hill in the middle of nowhere and expect mm. that it would be busy. Yeah. So what you have to do to get people to go to your store, it's the same, but online. Yeah, and what I'm seeing as well with this, we'll have to wrap up soon, but I I do want to just go quickly into social media marketing because you talked about Instagram and, you know, like I I talk to a lot of people, like LinkedIn is my primary channel just because it was the one that I was like low-hanging fruit, best one to get working first. I'm terrible with Instagram. I'm so, so bad with it. And great on one. Really? Well, well. so this is the thing, right? And I, I kind of have been talking about this a little bit because people have been asking me about it from like, should I be on all channels and like, what should I do on different channels? And I'm like, oh, I'm experimenting with TikTok at the moment. And people are like, why would you be on TikTok? And I'm like, well, th- people are still people. Like <laughs> they're not, they don't suddenly not become people because they're on TikTok. And if I can, if I can, once I get that messaging right and that medium right, I'm like, it will feel like the people who like that content will filter through and the people who don't won't like it right like yeah, so absolutely. I think people kind of seem to be doing this thing where they think that like oh you have to you know only certain channels will work for you if you do this kind of content so I wanted to ask you about that like because what you're kind of saying is more like it's more about the message than yes it needs to be where it is where your audience mm-hmm. is but your audience is online right it's kind of two sides you need the technical you know, ability for people to actually discover you on that platform and then you need the message to be right for that audience on that platform but related to what you do uniquely 
Um, so all of all of the strategies in general don't apply to Me Too, and Me Too brands often will will ask these questions. Or you should be everywhere because that's what everyone's doing, right? Um, first problem is di like dilution of your effort. If getting it amazing, if your goal is customer acquisition, for example, because there's other goals for being on social media, but if your goal is customer acquisition and you're getting as many customers as you need on one platform, which they definitely exist on each of those main, even if it's Pinterest, they exist on all of those platforms. So if you're nailing it, you should be attracting people, you know, finding people and attracting them. So you should have got your needs solved, in which case, why would you need to be on another platform? So usually when people are looking to another platform because they haven't made a first platform work, it's more often for technical reasons and committing reasons than it is, and sometimes messaging reasons as well, than it is because um, that platform itself is in inherently worth um, being sort of ignoring. Mm. Uh, having said that, you know, for example, in my business model, even though Instagram's the main space that I focus on, there's kind of two questions when it comes to other platforms. In general, for my actual work, I need to understand culture. So I need to understand where culture's at, which means I need to look and be around and be. So I'm, I've got heaps of strategy and understanding of platforms, even if I'm not um, on them myself or I'm only on them in an experimental capacity. The second is what is the role of innovation in your business? What is the role of discovering something new in your business? So for me, obviously, that's quite high in my particular industry because I'm passing that on to others. But if you're a business like a McDonald's, which is called like quite a turnkey operation, operational excellence is their focus. So it's about being the most quickest, most reliable, most consistent method. Innovation is less relevant. Innovation outside of logistics is less relevant to a business like that compared to, for example, Apple, where the whole thing is to create a new game-changing product every time they uh, launch into a new category. And so for them, innovation is particularly, has a particularly high value. So in their actual business systems, especially their idea generation systems and their strategy systems, a big amount of time should be spent on innovating and creating new ideas. There's um, a lot of things around understanding how ideas work that's probably beyond the scope of this conversation. But essentially, if you, were to, if you were to discover, okay, innovation and exploring new things is particularly relevant to my audience, and, you know, I've got a large Gen Z audience or um, I, I could do with the, the kind of reach that only TikTok's algorithm at the moment is giving, you know, for example, you had legitimate reasons as to why exploring that pathway would be good, then you would dedicate an equivalent amount of time to exploring that pathway as the need kind of dictated, if that makes sense. And that's that's sort of the way that I would approach exploring new platforms as well. So, like, I'm also exploring TikTok and, and now Instagram Reels, which is the copy of Instagram's copy of TikTok, which is coming. I know. I know. I saw that. Yeah, you, you play with it to the to the degree that that type of play is going to move, you know, your bottom line or inform your business. Makes sense. Melissa, we're going to have to wrap up. I feel like we could keep talking for like, yeah, I've got so many more questions. We'll have to do another chat. <laughs> like you as well. Like I love hearing all of the parts, but like you've, you've got just as many interesting answers and the questions really show that I think. <laughs> thanks Melissa well thanks everyone for listening and in future to people who are watching this on replay or listening to this on replay thanks for listening as well Melissa if people want to find out more about you more about what you're doing what's the best way for them to reach out and get in touch the best way is to find me on Instagram so my handle is um, my business name au so bonbo au b-o-n-b-o-a-u um, and I'm around there otherwise my website bonbo.co if you're not on that particular platform both of those uh, have great ways to reach me. Awesome. I'll make sure I put that in the description as well. Melissa, thanks again. Enjoy the rest of your week and I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Thank you for having me on. Thanks everyone. See you later. 
Okay, so that's it from me for today. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, I sure did. I learned a lot from Melissa and I'm looking forward to having her back on the show soon because I think there's still so much we could talk about. Uh, Like I said, if you want to check out what she's doing, head over to bonbo.co and I'll be back on Friday to start sharing a little bit about what I've been working on. We're going to be talking about, I'm live streaming today actually, we're going to be talking about the six interviews every thought leader needs to record. I'm going to give you some structure to start telling those different stories that your ideal clients are going to be interested in finding out about. So don't miss out on that on Friday or if you want to come check out the live stream, head over to LinkedIn. You can also head over to my Facebook page, so Grow Your Brand Podcast, or you can go on YouTube, of course, as well. Until next time, remember that sharing your talents with the world will make it a better place. The world is always on, but you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. At Mattress Firm's Black Friday Now Sale, save up to 60% on Sealy with Queen Mattresses starting at $279.99. Talk to a sleep expert today and unjunk your sleep.